This past week included Charles Darwin's birthday. He was born a little more than 200 years ago on February 12, 1809. In recent years, his birthday has become known as International Darwin Day, an annual opportunity to celebrate the principles of perpetual curiosity, of scientific thinking, and of, hunger, and of the hunger for truth that guided his life. And one tragedy of this ongoing creationism versus evolution debate is that coming to terms with Darwin's theories of natural selection and of common descent, those were among the greatest intellectual challenges of the 19th century. But we don't live in the 19th century. We live in the 21st century, long past the point where the basic tenets of evolution became settled science. Now, both uh, one reason it's appropriate to talk about International Darwin Day in a UU congregation is that both sides of Darwin's family were largely Unitarian, although there were Anglican influences as well. So while it's true that Darwin was baptized in the, an Anglican church, he attended an Anglican boarding school and was married by an Anglican priest, it's also the case that growing up, both Charles and his siblings attended the Unitarian chapel with their mother, and that the liturgy that was in his wedding to his <clears throat> first cousin, uh, Emma Wedgwood, was, um, was, quote, adapted to suit the Unitarians. Uh, we do tend to be notorious changers of liturgy. Now, accordingly, some of our Unitarian and Universalist forebears were among the earliest religious leaders to embrace the paradigm-shifting um, implications of Darwin's discoveries that we humans are not a little lower than the angels, but rather a little higher than the apes with whom we share a common ancestor. And we now know on the DNA level, something uh, Darwin could not have known, that there is a 1.23% difference between we humans and chimpanzees. 1.23 on the DNA level. We humans are not uniquely special creations. We are a subspecies of the animal kingdom, deeply interconnected with the other beings and the ecosystems of this planet. Uh, and, our, and as our UU seventh principle affirms, we need to have a deep respect for the interdependent web of all existence, of which we are very much a part. Relatedly, I was interested to see a Gallup poll a few uh, months ago that the percentage of the population in the United States reporting a belief in creationism is at a new low. The percentage of U.S. adults who believe that God created uh, humans in their present form sometime within the last 10,000 years or so, which is the strict uh, creationist view, has, that is what has reached a new low. Uh, 38% of U.S. adults now accept uh, creationism, while 57% believe in some form of evolution. Now, 38% is a lot higher than I wish it were, but 57% uh, believing in evolution, either God-guided or not, uh, saying that humans have developed over millions of years from less advanced forms of life. Uh, that is good news. This growing shift, even if it's taking a long time toward a more evidence-based worldview, is good news, and these days I'm glad to celebrate signs of hope wherever I can find them. And fact-based thinking, right? 
Uh, to give you a few more details from that poll, on one hand, it remains the case that most Americans believe that God had a hand in creating human beings, whether in the present form or part of an evolutionary process over millions of years. On the other hand, it's interesting to note that since 1982, when Gallup began asking that precise polling question, agreement with a more secular point of view, meaning that humans evolved from lower life forms without any divine intervention, that secular view has doubled since 1982 from 9 to 19% of adults in the United States. Of course, the um, challenge used to be greater. If we turn back the clock to Darwin's own time in the mid-19th century, the percentage of people believing in creationism was around 100%. And part of the prevailing view that Darwin was challenging was a book titled Essay on Classification. It was this major uh, work on creationism by a then world-famous Harvard professor named Louis um, Agassiz, I guess. Uh, Darwin called this book, quote, utterly impractical rubbish. In disparaging Aguiz's book, I don't think his primary intention was just to be mean. Well, maybe it was a little to be mean. But more importantly, he was causing this allegedly important book utterly impractical rubbish because it didn't explain the natural world that Darwin had seen through his close, um, detailed study of the world. Along these lines, the most interesting book I've read recently about a contemporary scientist following in Darwin's footsteps is titled The Evolution of Beauty, How Darwin's Forgotten Theory of Mate Choice Shapes the Animal World and Us. It's by Richard Prum. He's a professor of ornithology at Yale University, meaning that he specializes in the study of birds. Um, Prom um, is a, won a MacArthur Genius Grant back in 2010. The New York Times named this latest book by him, The Evolution of Beauty, as one of the top 10 best books of 2017. And to give you just one of many reasons why this is a fascinating read, uh, during the time he was writing this book, Dr. Prom tells the story of being at a dinner party with his wife and a few other couples, most of whom they were meeting for the first time. And when it came up that he was an ornithologist, one of the people sort of across the table from him overheard that and excitedly exclaimed, you're just the one I need to ask. It turns out that one of the favorite books of her three boys was a classic children's book titled Make Way for Ducklings. Did anyone have that read to them or read that? All right, we have some Make Way for Ducklings fans out there. It's by Robert uh, McCloskey. As some of you may have experienced with children and their favorite books, they only like to read them once and never again. <laughs> no. Her boys had requested that she read it to them so many times that she essentially had it memorized, and she said that there's this one part of the book that's always really bothered me. Uh, it's that after the mallard ducks meet, they build a nest, and the female duck lays her egg. She says it seems like they're just getting started to have this lovely, nice family together. And then what happens? He takes off, right? What's up with that, she asks. <laughs> Overhearing this question, Prom's wife intervened from the other side of the table. You didn't just ask my husband about duck sex, did you? This woman had unwittingly asked Prom about one of his particular areas of interest. 
to try to phrase this as delicately as possible, um, let's just say that as his wife feared, the dinner table conversation that evening ended up being dominated by the surprisingly interesting amount there is to learn about, shall we say, duck mating anatomy and the sometimes disturbing nature of duck mating rituals. But ultimately, the behavior of waterfowl, which trends into the Fifty Shades of Grey territory, um, (laughs) is really only a side project for Prom. His larger interest is in birds generally, and like Darwin before him, he is interested in following where is it that the evidence leads about how the world actually is, not just how I think it is or how I've been told that it is. The philosopher Wittgenstein summarized this in his adage, don't think, look. Don't think, look, what's actually the case? And I don't know what you think, I want to know what you saw. Uh, or as we use call it, our fourth principle, the free and responsible search for truth and meaning. And for Prom, his decades-long practice of closely observing, closely observing birds, it began at age 10, and he has been a committed bird watcher ever since. He says that my initial curiosity grew, grew into an obsession and then a consuming passion. I never really considered doing anything else in my life. Fortunately, I got a job at Yale because I am unfit now for any other sort of employment. Are any of you avid bird watchers? Any, any avid bird watchers out there? I know we have, okay, I saw a few hands. I know we have a few very seriously avid, because uh, I see your pictures on Facebook. A few of you are quite serious about bird watching. I've never done any really formal bird watching, but I can understand the appeal um, from the perspective of a collector hunting to find the previously unseen examples of whatever one is into collecting. In the case of the most dedicated bird watchers, the ultimate goal of birding is to know all the birds in the world, which is around 10,000 species. And again, although I don't know that much about um, bird watching, I have occasionally researched a bird that unexpectedly caught my attention. The most recent time this happened was a year or so ago. I was um, running around Color Lake in downtown Frederick, and out the corner of my eye, I spotted this fairly large bird that I'd never seen before. It was about, I don't know, two feet long, uh, grayish-white body, blue-gray wings, uh, beady red eyes, uh, yellow legs, and the top of its head was black. And I thought to myself, what was that? Uh, So I turned around and ran back a little bit. I took my phone out of the armband and posted a picture on social media saying, does anyone know what bird this is? By the time I was home from my run, uh, more than one person had replied that it was anyone... Yes, a black-crowned night heron, which I now know are fairly frequently seen around Color Lake uh, at various times, at certain times of year. Now, some of you may be thinking, what does birding per se have to do with evolution? Well, Darwin is most famous for his theory of natural selection, which has been summarized um, as survival of the fittest. In other words, those members of a given species most adapted to their environment, even if that means eating upside down like the flamingos do, uh, those would be the ones most likely to live long enough to mate and then to pass down their uh, genes to the next generation. But here's where it gets interesting. Darwin saw not only survival of the fittest in the world, he also saw beauty. So, for instance, Darwin famously wrote that the sight of a feather in a peacock's tail, whenever I gaze at it, it makes me sick. 
picking up on that phrase, Prum elaborates that the tail did not help the male peacock survive. If anything, that huge tail was a hindrance, slowing the peacock down and making him more vulnerable to predators. So that's what made Darwin sick, because it interfered with his lovely theory about uh, evolution and natural selection. Uh, And that beautiful plumage of the peacock is only one among many examples of beauty in the world, especially among birds, but not only among birds. So to trace the evolution in Darwin's attempt to account for the world as it actually is, not just according to his pet theory, which was really important and good, uh, it's sometimes helpful to note a little bit longer version of the book titles. Often his book titles are abbreviated, but they were actually super long and fairly descriptive of the, he put the important part, right? He didn't bury the lead, in other words. It was right there in the title. And in 1859, he published his most famous book on the origin of the species by means of natural selection. And although his theory of natural selection explains some significant aspects of the world, there were complicating factors remaining, like the existence of those beautiful peacock feathers. And because the extravagance of its design, again, had no uh, discernible survival value whatsoever, the peacock's tail seemed to challenge everything Darwin had written in On Origin of Species, On the Origin of Species. So a little more than a decade later, in 1871, we can see his answer in the title of his next landmark book, The Descent of Man. Usually it just stops there, but the full title is The Descent, and, the Descent of Man and Selection in Relation to Sex. And although this book title is almost always abbreviated, again, The Descent of Man, it, it masks that second part of the title, Selection in Relation to Sex, which is what Prom meant by his book title, The Evolution of Beauty, how Darwin's forgotten theory of mate selection shapes the animal world and us. The upshot is that Darwin eventually realized that evolution was influenced not only by natural selection, the so-called survival of the fittest, but also by a second significant factor beautiful features that attract mates. Intriguingly, in many animal species, it is the female who most often controls the choices related to this aspect of evolution, a claim that was scandalous according to the Victorian gender assumptions of, for females to be in charge of anything, was scandalous in the Victorian assumptions of Darwin's time. So it turns out that in the billions of years-long history of evolution, not only does survival and utility happen, but beauty happens, pleasure happens. As Prum writes, evolution is frequently quirkier, stranger, more historically contingent, individualized, less predictable, and generalizable than adaption alone can explain. Evolution can even be decadent. In pursuit of their subjective preferences, individuals can make mating choices that are, shall we say, maladaptive, resulting in a worse fit between the organism and the environment. Natural selection alone cannot explain the diversity, the complexity, and the extremity of the sexual ornaments, is Prum's words, that we see in nature. Darwin himself knew that to be the case, and as Prom highlight, and Prom highlights that aspect of Darwin's work, augmented with all that we've learned in the decades um, and more than a century since then. Still, it's interesting to note that more than 150 years after Darwin published The Descent of Man and Selection in Relation to Sex, that the role of aesthetics in evolution is news. Um, that it, to the extent that it can make one of the top ten you know, best books of the year by the New York Times, shouldn't readers of the Times already know this? 
Part of the reason why this aspect of evolutionary science is less well known is that Darwin's theory of natural selection came first and uh, there is and continues to be the major source of controversy. But there's also an appeal in having just one simplistic explanation, right? And there's been a whole cottage industry of scientists trying to explain everything under the sun only through the lens of natural selection, which is important, but it's not the only factor. Prum also points to another reason why the role of aesthetics in evolution has often been neglected, and that is the emphasis this view puts on the role that female members of species often play. In Prum's words, I don't think it, was, it is a coincidence that evolutionary biologists finally began to reconsider mate choice, particularly female mate choice, as a genuine evolutionary phenomenon at precisely that moment when women in the United States and Europe began to organize politically and protest um, for equal rights, equal freedom, and access to birth control. It further mattered that it turns out that as larger numbers of biologists were women, that they noticed some different things that the men had not paid attention to. Uh, and the likelihood increased that attention would be paid to the roles of females in, evolu in evolution. More broadly, we're invited to see anew that more than 150 years after Darwin published on the origin of species, there continues to just be so much more to learn about the implications of the evolutionary, evolutionary worldview. So in that spirit, I'll conclude by inviting you to hear the final paragraph of his world historic book. What's kind of lovely is that unlike a lot of books that become out of date, uh, Darwin was actually a great literary writer, was, and his stuff continues to be very much worth revisiting even um, a century and a half later. And he begins in this final paragraph by naming the things we might normally see only as negatives, and then he shows how those very things are precisely part of the engine of evolution. He says, from the war of nature, from famine and death, from those things, the most exalted object which we are capable of conceiving, the production of higher animals, it directly follows. He then adds the famous line, there is a grandeur in this view of life. Because so many people had said, this is terrible, this is tragic. He invites us to see the grandeur in this view of life, how amazing it is that this happened. And we have lost the world, and although we have lost the worldview that allowed us to think we're a little lower than angels, he again invites us to see the grandeur in this evolutionary way of life, of knowing that we are deeply connected to the other animals um, on this planet, and that we share a common ancestor. And so he concludes that while this planet has gone cycling on according to the fixed law of gravity, from so simple a beginning... You know, single-celled organisms from so simple a beginning, endless forms, most beautiful, most wonderful, have been and are being evolved. ...of modern science, it can lead to despair, it can lead to nihilism, thinking that nothing really means anything in the grand scheme of things, to think that after Copernicus, you know, our, our planet was decentered. we thought we were the center of the universe, but it turns out we're the third rock from the sun, and on the periphery of one spiral galaxy that we now know, you know, Sagan was wrong, it's not billions and billions, it's trillions, right, there's at least two trillion, not solar systems, but galaxies in the universe, so... Copernicus decentered our planet.
planet. Darwin decentered our species. We thought that we were kind of the center of the reason why everything was here. Um, Einstein decentered space and time with his theory of relativity. Um, Hubble again further decentered the um, where we thought we were as far as our galaxy. And so in the sense of that, it can lead to despair. Some of like these, these shootings that are happening, it can lead people to think there's no meaning. There's no, I can just do whatever I want. Um, I would invite you to consider that we can, we can actually flip that to say that, you know, so if three, you know, maybe it's the case that love doesn't win. That in the grand scheme of things, entropy wins. The inevitable heat death of the universe wins. Maybe that's the case. But if that's the case, that in you know three, you know, that in billions in billions of years from now, the sun will devour our planet. If that's the case, then and nothing we do now will matter. Then we can actually flip that and say that doesn't matter now. What matters now is how we treat each other, and we can choose. Uh, you know, it, we don't have to say that love is the most important thing forever and ever eternity to say that love is the most important thing here and now. So may you continue your journey in love. Care for one another. Care for this one earth. Do justice and make peace. And as you go uh, out into the coming hours and days and weeks, uh, whatever taste or touch you've had in this time and place of hope, of love, of peace or joy, that goes with you out into the world. We're different for having spent this time together. May you live boldly and with thanksgiving.